You're listening to episode 19 of the Room to Grow podcast. I'm Emily Goff, a holistic nutritionist and women's lifestyle coach living in Hamilton, Ontario in Canada. And here on the Room to Grow podcast, I bring you thoughts or guests in areas of nutrition, mindset, lifestyle, and entrepreneurship that will help you gain confidence so you can stress less and elevate yourself to create the life you love. We are not here to do things perfectly, but we are here to learn from each other and to grow with lots of self-love and compassion along the way. Let's get started. Hey there, welcome back to the Room to Grow podcast. And today's guest is Elizabeth Sherman, and she's an executive health coach and just an incredible woman. She shares so much amazing info here. This is an absolute must listen. She really gets into the different stages of uh, something called neuro-linguistic programming, which is really, really crucial to help change your habits. So for anyone out there who has ever had a habit, whether it's health related or otherwise that they want to change, this is the, the true root and the true base of what you need to do to change your entire belief system around something. It's incredibly fascinating. And when she gets to that part of the interview in particular, I want to make sure that you actually Stop doing whatever you're doing, unless you're driving, obviously. (laughs) Stop doing whatever you're doing and listen really closely to truly absorb it because it is incredibly powerful and I think that it has just amazing value to really shift big, big things in your life. So Elizabeth uh, is actually sharing a lot of her personal journey throughout this as well and including some health struggles, how she found health for herself and how she coaches uh, high-functioning executives and entrepreneurs to basically change their life using these types of habit changes and making for sustainable lifestyle. So you're going to get so much out of this. I can't wait for you to listen and let's get going. Hey there. Welcome back to the room to grow podcast. And I have a super special guest. I always say that, but they're all special. Uh, Hi, Elizabeth. How are you doing today? (laughs) I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Emily. Oh, thank you for taking the time. Elizabeth and I actually are in the same uh, business coaching group right now this year. So that's how Elizabeth and I met. And she is an absolute wealth of information. So Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about what you do and sort of how you ended up where you are today and and doing what you're doing right now. Yeah. So I am a habit-based health coach. And so, you know, people ask me, what does that mean? And basically I work with, in the five areas of health. So diet, exercise, sleep, uh, smoking cessation, and stress management. And so those are the areas that I cover with my clients based on whether they need them or not. You know, some of them may or may not be smokers. Um, and so uh, I, I really got into this uh, as far as habit-based goes because I think that uh, for me, I am a very habit-based person. Uh, like when I was in college, I used to be a smoker. And I remember being really confused about... I would go home for vacations and I wouldn't have the desire to smoke. And it was really confusing to me. I was like, well, I smoke when I'm at school, but yet I don't smoke when I'm at home with my parents. And not that they would have really enjoyed me smoking, but, um, you know, it was, it was just confusing to me that I didn't really have that desire. And it wasn't until, uh, I started doing, uh, health coaching that I realized that, um, about, habits and stimuluses and responses and rewards that go along with 
you know, the habits that we create in our lives. That's really interesting. And I think it's really cool too, that you mentioned uh, smoking because often I, I feel like it's almost a little bit of a taboo topic in the health industry because most of us don't even talk about things like smoking because it's almost assumed, well, you know, of course we know that it's bad for us, but I feel like I, I don't actually hear many people talking about how to, to change that habit. Maybe it's just sort of the, the particular bubble that I'm in, in in the health industry, but I think that's actually a great thing because I think that needs to be talked about more. It's obviously a huge issue and, and it's something that a lot of people still really struggle with. It's very difficult to change that habit. It, it absolutely is. And, you know, I think that even in my own practice, I don't really talk about smoking cessation a lot because it, um, it's something that people who smoke know that they shouldn't be smoking. Mm. Right. Yeah. Um, but then also, I mean, to take a little bit of a detour, uh, you know, with the onset of vaping, I think that people see that as a healthier form of smoking, which it's, it's just a different form of smoking. That's a great point too. We could even, I mean, go down the path of, of smoking pot too, because it like marijuana is becoming much more prevalent, especially with mm -hmm. things like CBD oil. And obviously there's all different kinds of forms of it, but a lot of people still choose to smoke it. And, and at the end of the day, smoking is still smoking. Like you're, you're not really doing yourself any favors in, in that regard. If you want to, there can, there can be, I mean, I'm not going to make this a marijuana <laughs> discussion because that's a, a totally different topic, but um, it is, it, I mean, at the end of the day, smoking is still smoking and it still can have really harmful effects for us. And it's something that a lot of people are, are looking to change. Right. Right. But um, in pot smokers defense, you're not smoke. You're only smoking one joint. You're not smoking ten throughout the day. Definitely. 20. Well, I hope not. <laughs> that could create a next level experience. <laughs> so, how did you end up? I mean, other than you know, starting off uh, like as a smoker and being more interested in, in changing that habit. Yeah. Uh, I, you've kind of gone through some career changes as well. You've even moved countries. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, let's see. I used to be in high tech and uh, that's actually how I met my husband. I was living in Chicago. He was living in Austin and we kind of decided that if we wanted to make it work, that we should probably live in the same city. <laughs> um, but at the time, my mom was um, going through some pretty serious, you know, breast cancer treatment. And um, as I don't know, luck would have it, I guess. Um, I actually ended up moving the week before she passed away. So I left Chicago um, to move down to Austin. And as we were crossing the Texas-Arkansas border, I got a call from my aunt saying, you need to come home. Mm. And so we got to Austin. And the next day, I got on a plane back to uh, Chicago. And my mom passed away a few days later. And so it was actually a very profound experience for me because watching how that disease ravaged her body, it was really something that I wanted to make sure that didn't happen to myself. And at the time, I had just really kind of started working out. I really wasn't consistent. Um, I had kind of started to clean up my diet, but I was still significantly overweight. And so after she passed away, I started researching 
how do I not get breast cancer? And found out, I didn't know beforehand that being overweight is a huge risk factor for many diseases, not only cancer, but heart disease and diabetes and all the other, you know, big diseases. Uh, so I went, that's what actually was the catalyst for my journey to start uh, becoming healthier myself is if I could prevent myself from having breast cancer, then, you know, that would be great. Um, but then, so again, I was in high tech at the time and I kind of had this, uh, this midlife crisis at the age of 30 um, where I was like, how am I making the world a better place by making software for car dealerships? That's what I was doing at the time. And um, I went to see a psychologist, probably more as a life coach than a psychologist. And she was like, you know, I think that you would be a great wellness coach. That's what they were called. That's what we were called then. And um, it was really an emerging uh, industry. And so I was like, yes, that's what I'll do. So I got all of my certifications together, and a month after that, I got laid off from that job. And so it was like kismet, you know, all of these things lined up to, you know, present me with, okay, this is what you're going to do now. But at the time, no one really knew what a wellness coach was. I didn't even, I mean, I knew what a wellness coach was. I knew that I could help people, but coaching as a profession really wasn't a thing. This was 12 years ago. And so I didn't really know how to market myself and people didn't really know what to do with me. You know, even to this day, when I tell people that I'm a health coach, they respond with, oh, you're a life coach or, oh, you're a personal trainer. And so there's a lot of education that goes into being a health coach, especially, um, you know, since I live in Mexico now and people, I'm not working with people in person. So there's a lot of education that goes on there. Mm. Yeah, it's so true that that there's still so many people out there. Again, like we we can often be in sort of this bubble because we work in the online space that we just assume that everyone knows what that what that entails. And the reality exactly. is that we often have to educate people what we even do before we can, you know, let them know the the ways that that we can help them. One of the things that I got out of that the most was that um, that you started focusing on impact. I think that that's really profound because I think that that's, there's, there's so many people and, and I, I was one of them as well that felt like I was put here for more. Like I was, I, I was sort of placed on earth <laughs> to mm -hmm. do something more than just working, you know, stuck in a corporate nine to five and not enjoying what I was doing. So I think that that's, that that's really interesting because I, I suspect that a lot of people feel that way, but they don't know what to do about it. So it is really fascinating to hear how everything sort of lined up on your journey to place you sort of where you needed to be at the, at the particular times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what what um, made you decide to go to Mexico? <laughs> Other so, than, you know, the sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, let's see about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, my husband and I had the opportunity to spend a month in Belize and uh, that was really what sparked our interest. We spent a month there. He worked. Um, I was not yet online, although I was doing some online work. And um, it really kind of sparked our interest. Like, could we do this? Could we move to another country and live on the beach 
and work remotely. And so again, infrastructure wasn't there as far as the internet goes. I remember um, in this place that we were staying at, my husband could see like storm clouds come in and the internet would go out. And then as they passed, the internet would come back on again. <laughs> um, and it still happens sometimes, but. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but so we decided that Belize actually wasn't the place that we wanted to settle down, but uh, we really loved Mexico. We love the people here. We love um, the, the music, the, the food, the art is amazing. And so uh, where we live is actually in between Cancun and Playa del Carmen. So in an area called the Yucatan Peninsula, which we really, really like a lot. Uh, but we had every year we would go to a different place in Mexico, really trying to find where is this place that we want to go to. And about, I don't know, three or four years ago, we stumbled upon this tiny little town and we were like, hey, it kind of checks all the boxes. And so we had this amazing house in Austin, Texas. I mean, it was a five bedroom house. We don't have any kids. It was a five bedroom house, four bathrooms. We were living the dream. We had a pool. We had like a quarter acre of land. I mean, we just had everything. And I think that to this day, my family thinks I'm crazy. They were like, what are you doing selling? I mean, we sold everything and drove down to Mexico. Um, I sold all of my clothes, my shoes. Um, we sold our house, our cars, everything. And uh, it's, it's just a simpler life now. It's, it's actually kind of interesting. I absolutely love that. I'm, I'm such a minimalist. So I'm always fascinated by, by all of that, you know, going the more simple route and not being distracted by the more material stuff and, and instead building the life that you want, because there's a big difference between building the life that you want and having the stuff to fill the life that you want. Like it's, it's not that, that either one of those are bad. Like, you know, if somebody wants to go buy themselves a Mercedes Benz. That's totally cool. If that's going to bring you joy, do it, but just make sure that right. that's going to bring you joy before you make that, that kind of decision, as opposed to, doing it for reasons that involve, you know, like comparison and, and keeping up with the Joneses, like things like that. That's, that's the area where I think that people can get, get sucked down sort of a, a trap of what can turn into a sort of a spiral of, of unhappiness because it, there's always one more thing to buy and, and yeah. turn into really vicious cycles. So I think that's really, really cool what you guys did and, and how you've created the life that you decided that, that you wanted. And not necessarily doing it for the reasons that, that everyone else would, would do it for, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that. and what's really interesting is that, you know, within those 12 years between when I started out in coaching um, and when I started out, again, no one knew what to do with me. And so I was a personal trainer, but I was, I was really unfulfilled in that personal training role, knowing that I could help people more but not exactly sure how to let them know that I could do that. And so within those 12 years, the role of coaching really has, you know, become more prevalent as well. Technology has also kept or gotten a lot better. And so it's now allowed me to be a coach from the beaches of Mexico. That's awesome. Well, and let's talk a little bit more about the work that you do, because you yeah. do a lot of uh, things sort of related to the impact that hormones can have. And can you sort of explain how that works and some of the signs that we can start to pick up on that maybe our lifestyle choices are impacting our hormonal health? I totally geek out on this stuff. So I, I'm so 
<laughs> yeah. So um, I think, so most of the women that I work with are over the age of 40. And I think that anyone who's probably listening to this, if you are over the age of 40, you know that a big shift happened. And so I don't, I don't know why, but our home, our hormones do shift after the age of 40, 40, 45. Um, and so what tends to happen is when we're in our twenties, hormones aren't, our hormones are just more forgiving. And as we get older, they become more sensitive to stress, stress specifically. Um, but what happens is we start to see these things happen in our bodies that weren't really happening before. So for instance, in our twenties, we could go out and, you know, drink a bunch of beer and then the next day go for a run and keep our weight in check. But as we get older, that stuff just doesn't work anymore. Maintaining your weight just becomes more and more difficult. And what many women find is that they see um, belly fat start to happen. And they're like, how do I get rid of this? And so those you know, things that didn't really matter when we were younger really do start to pay a toll. And so all of those, again, habits that we had when we were younger that we haven't fixed as we get older start to negatively affect our bodies. Um, so some of the things that I work with on my, with my clients is I help them through, uh, well, I help them with their diet exercise and sleep and stress management to build a lifestyle that is best for them and their bodies. So some of the things that come up are their appetite, uh, cravings, uh, their sleep, and their mood. So those are the four what I call biomarkers that determine whether or not what they're doing in their lifestyle is good for them. So. And one thing about that is that like meals are never eaten in isolation. And I talk to people about mm-hmm. that a lot too. So what, what is one example that, that you uh, might have with it when your experience of, you know, a meal that someone eats and then an effect that ha- it has on them later, but it shows up in a totally different way. Yeah. So I actually have a couple different stories about this. One is a client of mine who was a self-professed I don't want to say carbaholic, but she was like, I, I eat carbs for breakfast. I have cereal every day. It's great. You know, no problems, whatever. And, you know, she was lean. She is lean. Um, she didn't really have any problems. But what we did was we started focusing a little bit more on proteins. And so after a while, she was, you know, eating protein for breakfast. And then she went on, um, not on vacation, but she went away for work. She went on a work uh, trip. And the hotel that she was staying at only had like one of those, um, <laughs> those, those carby breakfast uh, buffets with yeah. like cereal <laughs> and toast and, uh, you know, she, <laughs> exactly. Um, and honestly, she did a really great job picking out her breakfast by all, you know, practical, you know, points of view. She had oatmeal and some yogurt and it was the best choice that she could have made. Um, But what she found later, and she didn't really think much about it. She was like, okay, I'll have this. It'll be fine. So what she found out was later in the day, she found herself in the company break room, like chowing down on pretzels. She was like, what the heck is going on here? 
And she realized that it was her carby breakfast made her hungry later on in the day. Mm, it's so interesting because I, I always find the same thing with a lot of my clients as well. And it's, it's fascinating to see the effect that people have. It's also things like when, when people do the, the cycle of, oh, you know, I'm going to start a new diet on Monday and then they're mm -hmm. super restrictive Monday, Tuesday, they're still pretty restrictive Wednesday. They're starting to, to freak out a little bit <laughs> like mm -hmm. Thursday, Friday. That's all sort of adding up that they start like binging and then yeah. they go on that, that weekend binge. And then Monday yeah. they swear they're going to start it again. And it's, it's that never ending cycle because we're, we're eating in a way that is not supporting our bodies. It's, it's not allowing for that homeostasis basically that our body is always trying to search out. Right. Right. Um, you know, another example that I have of how what we eat can affect our, our bodies and our experience is for me. Um, so when women get to be in like the perimenopause stage, uh, one of the most common effects is night sweats. And so what I'll, um, what I'll do with a client who finds that she has night sweats or even waking up in the middle of the night is I'll have her cut out starches in the last meal of her day. And so I was doing that myself. And what I found was actually that not all carbohydrates actually gave me night sweats, but potatoes in particular gave me night sweats. And so I just thought that that was a really interesting thing that, oh, okay, I can have rice, but potatoes, I can have them, but I'm going to pay for it later. Oh, that's so interesting because, and it's funny how, how so many different things affect us as individuals differently mm -hmm. as well, because something like starches for the last meal of the day, there has been some research to show that that can actually be really helpful to help people sleep. Mm -hmm. But when we factor in the, the hormonal aspect from like the, the age and for females and, and sort of night sweats and stuff that you're talking about, that can totally shift that to be something entirely different depending on the person. And then right. again, like individual foods too, that some starches could be okay, but that potatoes aren't. It's so interesting. And this is mm -hmm. why I think we always have to underline the fact that ultimately everyone sort of comes to the conclusion, I think at, at one point or another, that what works for one is not going to work for them. And that right. we have to really figure out what's going to work best for, for us because that can look so different from person to person, right? Mm -hmm. It really can. Um, and so, you know, people ask, you know, what is the best diet or what's the best workout for me? And I hate to say, I don't know, but we really don't know until we try it out. Absolutely. And it, we really have to try it on for size and to experiment with different things. And, and that's the part that, that none of us like, right? Because we just want no. to tell us what to do and, and make it easier for us because, you know, experimenting takes longer. It takes more effort. It takes it takes more introspective work too. just really observing what's going on and being more in tune with our bodies. And all of that is more work than somebody just handing us a meal plan. Well, and not only that, but what worked for us before may not work later. Yes. So as I mentioned before, you know, going out for a, you know, six mile run doesn't work anymore when you become 45, 50. Exactly. And even just on a, on a smaller scale, I mean, what works for somebody today might not feel as good in a week either. Mm -hmm. I mean, our bodies are always changing. So I talk to all kinds of people where they've had, uh, they've had food intolerances and stuff, and stuff in the past. And then all of a sudden they're starting to notice that some foods that felt fine for them 
are no longer agreeing with them anymore too. Yeah. So it yeah. can, it can really be shifting all the time. And that's, that's part of what makes it a little bit more difficult is that it's, it's, it's a journey. It's not, it's not a destination. There's always going to be more work to do it. I think when it comes to our health. Yeah. Well, and some of the, some of the, the, these habits that we can get into, they become really routine and that can be a bit of a dangerous road to go down because when we allow those habits to sort of take over, then we end up being kind of unconscious about them and not even really noticing. So if a particular mm. habit has, if, sorry, if a particular behavior has become a habit, how can we start to change them into the new behavior that we're trying to adopt and then actually make it stick? Yeah. So it's funny over the course of my uh, coaching career, the answer to this has actually changed a little bit. So if we had talked maybe two or two years ago, I would have told you that um, if we want to change a behavior, then we cannot just stop doing it. So for instance, if I want to stop eating sweets after dinner, I can't just stop. And what we need to do instead is replace that habit with a different habit. So, um, you know, as I mentioned before, you have your stimulus or your, your habit routine, you have your actual habit, and then you have your, um, your response to that or your, your reward. And so at some point you have to interrupt that habit loop. And so let's say that every night after you wash dishes, you sit down on the couch and then you get this craving for ice cream. So at some point, you need to interrupt that habit loop. And maybe it's instead of sitting on the couch, I'm going to go for a walk. Or instead of sitting on the couch, I'm going to read a book. Um, and so you kind of interrupt that habit loop so that your brain doesn't then automatically go into the next thinking, oh, I need to have ice cream because that's what naturally comes next. Um, and so where I've actually kind of shifted is into, and it's really uncomfortable, but what they call surfing the urge, which is feeling the uncomfortableness, but resisting it. Because when we automatically, and I think it depends on why we're actually in that habit, um, if it's an emotional response, definitely surfing the urge is more important. But if it's just, you know, a routine, then I think that you can disrupt the habit by doing something else. But for instance, in emotional eating, every time I get angry, then I go to the pantry. Um, in that instance, I think that the technique of recognizing why you're looking in the pantry for something and realizing that the answer isn't in the pantry, but inside yourself. Mm, that's beautifully said. It's, it's interesting because I think that sometimes we need to almost detach ourselves a little bit and, and step out of ourselves to take a look at the deeper reasons as to why we're, we're eating something. And that exactly. takes a level of detachment, right? Especially if, if we're feeling you know, super angry or, or super emotional about something, we, we don't want to take the role of observer in that moment. We just want the damn chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it takes some effort. We have to, to actually still be conscious of what we're doing so that we can figure out why we're doing it in order to change the habit, I think. 
Yes. And one of the things that I start out with with my clients is being aware of hunger cues. Uh, one of our very first habits is not eating more than 80% full or eating just enough. So eating enough food so that you know that you're going to be okay, so that you know that in three or four hours you'll be hungry again, but not overeating so that you don't feel good. And once you really start to feel that of I'm eating just enough and paying attention to your hunger cues, then I think when we are looking in the pantry and you ask yourself, am I hungry? Then if the answer is no, I'm not hungry, but I feel anxious or I, I'm here for some other reason, that's when we can reflect back and say, wait, why am I doing this? And if we really want to break out of that cycle of emotional eating, we have to have that conversation with ourselves. Yeah, for sure. Now, what would you suggest in an instance of, uh, let's say, somebody gets themselves a treat every single time they go to the grocery store? How would you suggest breaking that, that habit? Because we still have to go to the grocery store, obviously. So right. how are we going to shift that behavior away from purchasing that particular treat every time we go? Um, well, I guess the question is, do they want to break that treat or do they want to break that habit? Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so, you know, okay, let's say that I want to break that habit. Um, so I can either not buy the treat or I can say I can have it um, if I buy it in a smaller size, maybe. Or I can, um, I'm not going to buy a gallon of ice cream. I can have ice cream, but I'm not going to buy a gallon. I'm going to buy a smaller container. Or I'm not going to bring it home. If I want ice cream, I can go out for it. That's so um, true. Yeah. So those are some techniques that people can use. They can also shift it so that they're buying a treat, but they're not buying maybe the best treat. They're buying something a little better for them. Yep. That's a great point as well. Or, I mean, I'll, I'll even, uh, sometimes I'll have people who, who are interested in cooking or something like that. And then they'll mm -hmm. just find a recipe that they really like, you know, for, I don't know, cookies or something like that, that yeah. is a little bit healthier version of, and they still really like them, but it's not going to, you know, be quite as, uh, calorically dense, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then that can make a big difference too. But then, I mean, there could also be times where, Maybe you do just need to sort of surf the urge in that example as well. Again, if, if it's a habit that you do want to actually change, I think that basically everything that you suggested uh, could be really helpful depending on the individual and the situation that they're in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, quite honestly, I, I do not, um, how do I say, I, I don't really uh, cut back on anything myself. Uh, at this point, I feel like I have gotten to the point where I am in touch with my hunger cues and what my body needs so that I don't go for the lesser version of anything. But I, the foods that we eat tell us when we've had enough. So there's the satisfaction level as well. And so if I'm eating a meal that's high in fat um, then I'm probably not going to need to eat as much because my body knows when to cut me off. My hunger levels tell me when I've had enough. 
That's also beautifully said that, that the foods we eat will tell us when we've had enough. I think that that's, that's perfectly summed up and that once we get to know our bodies a little bit better, that that's a really, really helpful way of, of thinking about food in, in a different way that's actually going to support the habits that we're trying to build. Yeah, because there was a huge time when I was making all sorts of, I don't want to say fake treats, but like black bean brownies and, you know, gluten-free cookies and all of these healthier treats that weren't really good, that I had this halo effect over them that was like, oh, this is, um, you know, good for me. I can eat it all. And that's actually not true. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Exact same thing. So funny you say that because I actually was talking to a, a coaching client. I, I actually uh, interviewed her here on the podcast, and I yeah, I listened to that. Yeah, that. yeah, that's right. And she was doing the same thing that she was making healthier treats. And and I said, you know, why don't we? I'll reference the, the episode in the show notes. I said, you know, why don't why don't you actually just have the real cookie that you want, and then see how that feels? Because when you're constantly making the the healthy ones that mm-hmm. you are telling yourself, well, this is you know, it's good for me. It's made from, from black beans. Well, that's mm-hmm. fine, but there's probably also still sugar in it. And right. you don't need to eat an entire tray. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so funny. Well, I also want to make sure that we touch on neuro-linguistic programming because you mentioned that, uh, I, we, we've talked about that in passing. And for anyone who doesn't know, I'm going to let Elizabeth uh, explain it a little bit more. It's, it's also referred to as uh, just NLP. And the way I understand it, NLP tries to sort of detect and modify unconscious biases that we're, that we're carrying, sort of the, the story that, that we tell ourselves. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's actually very, um, it's a very scary name. It does. <laughs> but, it, very <laughs> it does. But it's really kind of just a coaching methodology. And there are three big uh, concepts that um, I'll share here. One, the first one is that the words that we use matter. So the words that we use to describe ourselves, that describe our experiences, um, they really influence our subconscious mind. And uh, in turn, then that's what we experience. So an example of that might be if you constantly say, I'm sick and tired of you know, this, or I'm sick and tired of that, then you are going to become sick and tired. Um, so that's, that's one concept that the words that we use matter. And so once we start changing the words that we use, then our experience of life is actually going to change along with that. Now, the second concept is really that our experiences shape our thoughts. Our our thoughts actually create our feelings our feelings influence our actions, and then our actions produce our experience. And so it's this circle that is, again, self-referencing. So an example of this might be, um, think about when you were in high school, and let's say that you showed up to school wearing a new outfit, and all of the kids laughed at you. So you immediately think then that you are a bad person. And so then you end up shutting down. And by shutting down, then those kids don't get to know you. And then, again, 
you think that you are unliked and unworthy and therefore you feel bad about yourself. And it's just this self-perpetuating cycle. Now, there's a very brief moment in between our feelings and our actions where we can actually change things. And we can choose to decide whether or not we are actually, whether our feelings are valid or whether they are based on untruths, stories that we're telling ourselves. So does that, is that making sense so far? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that that's fascinating, especially the examples that you gave are really good about, you know, I'm sick and tired of blank and you will become sick and tired. It's basically like a, a more scientific way of describing manifestation in some ways. It's really fascinating to me. I find this stuff so, so cool. Yeah. So manifestation, which is really popular right now, is actually very intertwined with NLP. Interesting. That's okay. Sure. That's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah. I, I, I find this totally, totally fascinating. So how can we take, take NLP and, and use it to our advantage to make you know, these better habits stick, essentially? Yeah, so the the third uh, big takeaway of NLP is what they call the logical levels of change. And so if you think about a, a, a pyramid, and at the very top, you have your environment. And I think that when we, um, when we start to change our habits, when we start to change our behavior, Oftentimes, we try to change our environment. So for an example would be changing, cleaning out your pantry. So you're going to clean out your pantry of all of the bad stuff, put all of the good stuff in. And that's great. But when, as time goes on, that bad stuff is going to creep in and the good stuff is not going to get replenished. It's going to get thrown away because people don't eat their broccoli and it just sits there and rots. <laughs> so, you know, changing. Broccoli. I love broccoli. <laughs> I do too. I do too. But, you know. No, no, um, I totally don't reject. <laughs> so funny. Um, you know, it's, it's the crisper drawer of death, right? That's right. <laughs> um, so, you know, changing our environment can actually be very powerful as far as change goes. But it's really um, just the tip of the iceberg. So below that, then, you have behaviors. And um, behaviors, then, are those things that you do. And sometimes it's a fake it until you make it. So again, if we were going to go back to um, smoking, you know, your environmental change might be um, not buying uh, cigarettes, not having them in the house, throwing away your lighters, breaking your, uh, your ashtrays, things like that. Behavior is not smoking. Um, But as we go down this pyramid, we actually have more impactful um, uh, levels. So the next level down is capability. And so what that means is believing that you actually can, okay? That believing that you are capable of not smoking. I imagine Below, that has to be one of the most powerful versions of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other aspect of that could be like, if you're starting an exercise routine, you know, believing or being capable of running, 
you know, and not having your knees hurt or not having some sort of injury. So that's where that comes in. And then below that is actually beliefs and values. So what we believe. So do you believe that not smoking is going to make you healthier? Or do you believe that running is a good exercise? Do you believe that you can be an athlete or that you can run in a 5K? And then below that, which is the biggest concept, is identity. So once you, once you decide, I am a non-smoker, you are not going to smoke anymore. Once you decide, I am an athlete, then getting out of that exercise routine is going to be really difficult. Once you decide that I am a person who eats healthy foods, fruits and vegetables, lean meats, I don't eat, I'm not a person who eats fried foods, then you've completely made the shift. So... When we find ourselves sabotaging ourselves, um, so for instance, let's say that I've prepared all of this food in my refrigerator, but it's Thursday night and I'm just really tired and instead of eating the food that's readily available for me, I decide to go out and get something to pick up. Why have I just sabotaged myself? And it really goes back to identity and beliefs about who we are as a person and what, um, what we want our life to look like. If anyone's listening to this right now who is, who is distracted, you're doing something else, I want you to stop and backtrack what Elizabeth just said <laughs> to the beginning of this, of this portion about the NLP and listen to it again <laughs> because it is so powerful identifying as as that person that you think that you are like the, I, I could give so many even just personal examples of this I never thought yeah. I was creative um I always thought I was super clumsy and that I would never you know work out that was so far out of my realm mm. years ago that mm -hmm. I didn't even think about lifting weights I just hop on the elliptical and I thought that that was like the best I would ever get <laughs> right there's so many so many instances that are popping into my own head of, of examples that I can think of in my own life where I have identified as something that once I changed that belief, then it came to be something different. But it wasn't until I shifted that belief that that change was possible because otherwise it's like you've shut the door on whatever you, you think that you, that you might have wanted because you think it's not possible for you. If you think it's not possible for you, of course you're never going to be able to get there because you've, you've slammed that door shut and you right. can't open it again until you decide to open it. Right. And, you know, I think it wasn't until recently that I actually discovered in my own journey where, how to identify where those limiting beliefs and where that identity is. Um, so one thing that we can do to figure out identity, because it's easier to look at other people than it is to look at ourselves. Always. <laughs> <laughs> but look at the beliefs of your parents and your siblings. Um, because a lot of the, the identity and beliefs and values that we have are imprinted on us uh, before the age of seven. 
And so that actually is a really good way of starting to understand where you get your own uh, identity and beliefs and values. But the other thing that I've really started paying attention to in myself is resistance. So when I find myself um, either procrastinating or doing self-sabotage, then I stop and I check myself and I say, why am I doing this? And it really goes back to how, how is my subconscious brain then at odds with what my conscious brain has as a goal? And so what are the, and it kind of exposes that story that we tell ourselves about who we are. So, you know, as you said, I never saw myself as great or graceful. Um, and that's a, that's a story I've told myself for years and years and years. Yeah. And there well. are so many fascinating examples of this because it's, it, we could even take this, we could take this down any road. We could even take this down the road of, you know, like money mindset and stuff like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of things that until we start to dig a little bit deeper in terms of how we think about money, if, if you're someone who thinks, you know, money is always going to be tight then it always will be, yep. right? So we mm -hmm. have to, to break out of that. But a lot of times those beliefs have been given to us by usually by our parents. And like you said, you know, from a very young age, but we don't think about that as adults. It's not until we, again, become more of the observer in our own lives when we can look back at that and go, oh, this makes sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I exactly. <get> it, <laughs> mm -hmm. it doesn't make it necessarily any easier to move past, but I think that that's a really important first step is recognizing the impact that some of those things have had early on, because then you can trace that to where you are today. And then you can figure out what's holding you back and how to reopen that door. Well, right. And without awareness, we are unable to change. So unless you are willing to look at that and become aware of your habits or your beliefs, then you're never going to be able to change those. Absolutely. No, that's, that's incredibly powerful for sure. Now, I mean, beyond the, the NLP, which I think is, uh -huh. is totally, I think that's by far like the most powerful thing that I, I may have featured on the podcast. I think that that's incredibly <laughs> powerful because when we really dig into that and we do the work, that mm -hmm. can be what can change our entire lives. But do you have any other uh, like tips or strategies that can help us shift our, our behavior and, and habits, especially if maybe people are feeling overwhelmed at everything we just talked about, because it can't seem like a lot. Like if you start kind of observing and going like, holy shit, I've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> well, so um, when my husband and I got married, we were on a cruise in Tahiti. And uh, I, I don't say that to be all high and mighty or anything, but there is this woman who was on the cruise. She was French. And so uh, we could not communicate. But for some reason, I thought she was just the bee's knees. She was just cool. She was probably in her early 70s. Um, by all practical means, she was not beautiful. Um, but there was something about her that I was like, when I get to be her age, I want to be just like her. And so I started creating these stories in my head of what she was like, or rather what future Elizabeth would be. And I think that 
when we start with, and this is a very Stephen Covey, you know, the seven habits of highly successful people thing. But when we start with the end in mind, when we look at, when we visualize what we want to be when we are older, when we are 70 years old, what does that look like? What do I want to do on a daily basis? What are the relationships that I want to have with my husband or my children or my parents or my siblings? And going out and actively seeking that, that result, then we can work backwards. And so by programming that and visualizing it into our heads, we can actually get to that point. And, you know, when I think back to the 20-year-old Elizabeth, who was not exercising, who was eating crap, and who was really closed off from everyone, I think that although she probably uh, would abhor the idea of being 50, um, looking at me today, she would be like, hell yeah, I want to be like that. So, you know, looking at your future self, and using that as a guide for where you want to be was extremely powerful for me. And it allowed me to change my habits because I had a goal in mind. I really, really like that a lot. And I totally agree that the, the power of, of sort of future visualization, because a lot mm -hmm. of times people don't even know again, it, it can almost come down to sort of uh, unconscious behavior. Like people will get stuck, in, and I've talked about this on the podcast before too, that people will get stuck in a habit of, you know, work, eat, sleep, repeat, you know, yeah. and it just becomes an unconscious sort of habit loop. And we get lost in, in terms of thinking, thinking farther ahead than the next day or the next week. We, we don't think far enough in advance to think, you know, what would, what would my ideal day look like? What, what is it that I, that I want to be doing in 10, 20, 30 years, how, how do I want to be showing up at that point and then tracing that backwards? So yeah. it's really fascinating. And I think that it can be incredibly powerful and we can do that in terms of, you know, just thinking what the ideal would be for ourselves and sort of creating that in our own minds, or people can do it more the way you did and sort of picking a, like a role model, even though you, <laughs> you potentially <laughs> invented what you, what you imagined her life to be. I still think right. that that's incredibly powerful because you have have modeled what you want to live like after those types of stories. So that again, like the power of story is is really playing a huge role here, and and it can work to our benefit. It doesn't have to be in a negative way. We can have negative stories too that we can change, but using sure. the power of story in the most positive way can be even more powerful. Yeah, I love that. It's really interesting. Well, what are you, what are you reading right now? I always love asking people what they're reading. Oh, I am reading uh, Jen Sincero's book, You Are a Badass. Oh, such a good book. I love that book. <laughs> <laughs> I love that yeah, book. Yeah, I already read her one about making money, but I'm currently reading the just the straight one. Yeah. Oh, such a good one. I'll link that up in the show notes because anyone who, who is not yet familiar with uh, Jen Sincero is, uh, definitely missing out. That is a must read for sure. That's such a good one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I always ask everyone this who comes on the podcast, if you could okay. offer people one piece of advice on how to grow into the best version of themselves, what would it be? Oh, 
Um, you know, I think that that just goes back to um, visualizing their future self and honoring who that person is. Um, you know, I know, as you said, there are a lot of people who just go through the day-to-day -day stuff, and it's painful to wake yourself up and go after the life that you want. But it is so much more rewarding to live a fully conscious life than to wake up when it's too late. Mm, that's incredibly powerful too. I totally agree. And, and that's the other thing too, is that I think that there, are, I, I have people in my life who will sometimes say that it's too late for them. And mm. I, I don't personally, it kind of breaks my heart because I don't believe that it's ever too late. And no. that there are always things that you can do to start making choices that can turn your life completely the other direction, no matter what age you are. So I hope that, that uh, anyone listening can really take a lot from that and, and maybe start to focus on some of the things that, uh, that they really want later in life. And it could also happen a lot sooner than you think, too. <laughs> mm -hmm. So Elizabeth, where can people find you? I want to make sure that everyone uh, can get hooked up and, and know where to, uh, where to find you online and all the things. Yeah, well, so my website is elizabethsherman.com. Uh, and let's see, you can find me on Facebook at Total Health by Elizabeth. Let's see, I'm on Instagram as esherman68. And LinkedIn is Elizabeth Sherman without the N, Elizabeth Sherman. <laughs> it cut you off. It did. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time today. I'm so grateful and I have learned a ton from this, uh, particularly about the NLP. I think that that's just incredibly powerful and uh, really has the power to, to make massive changes and shifts in people's lives. So I hope that everyone goes back and, and rewinds and listens to that part again, because I know I definitely will be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on, Emily. This was just so much fun. I had so much fun doing this. So Aww, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> you guys. How good was that? <laughs> Elizabeth had so much awesome info packed in there. I feel like we covered so much ground and the NLP, uh, the neuro linguistic programming part in particular is just so fascinating to me because I think that it can really truly create massive shifts in your life, whether that's about your health, whether that's about uh, the way you think about money, the way you think about your career, your purpose in life. There's so many different angles that, that you can take on that and make it work for you. So I hope that you got as much out of that as I did and all of the show notes, everything that we talked about in this episode can all be found over at roomtogrowpodcast.com. So one more thing before we go, if you could take a screenshot and share this with somebody who needs it, share this on social media, make sure to tag me at Emily Goff Coach. That's uh, how you can find me over at Instagram. I would love to connect with you, to thank you, to see your beautiful face. It just makes my day and it really makes a huge difference to the podcast itself. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you in a couple of days. Thanks so much for listening to the Room to Grow podcast today. All show notes and references can be found over at roomtogrowpodcast.com. And can you do me one huge favor before you go though? If you can take a, take a screenshot of this episode and tag me on social media, I would absolutely love to see who's listening and get to connect with you and thank you. And if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would go a long way and make such a huge difference. It really helps to get the word out there, get more amazing guests on the show and helps to get all of this information out to the world. 
looking forward to growing with you.